Hey, my name is Seth. Uh, I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Woodland Hills, and it's a real pleasure to be with you guys this morning. Um, can I say a prayer before we launch off on the sermon today? Lord, we, uh, we pause on this Sunday and ask you to show us your heart and open up our eyes to see you because you're here and open up our ears to hear from you, open up our minds to know you. <clears throat> um, Lord, I pray that as I, um, as I share some of the thoughts that I've prepared for this congregation and this weekend, uh, I pray that it would be more than me talking. Uh, I pray that your living and vibrant presence would fill my words and connect it so that um, your kingdom can come on earth and your will can be done on this planet on this planet just like it is in heaven. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the last time I was up here with you uh, was two weeks ago, and I was uh, sharing a sermon about following promptings. Um, you know, like neuroscience has, uh, has actually proven that our brains have a bias towards the negative, which means you're not alone if, if you feel a prompting to like a sort of a nudge to do something. If your first inclination is like, nah, I don't want to do that, it's actually scientifically proven that part of the problem is your brain, so we have to like retrain them. Uh, it's not just yours, it's mine too. Now this last Friday, uh, Friday's my day off, and so my wife and I had planned uh, kind of a cheap and fun adventure in downtown Minneapolis. We both went to school at a little college that's right downtown, and back when we were broke, we would waste time on fun days meandering through the Skyway system uh, of Minneapolis. Now, partly because it's fun to do, but also partly because I'm from California, and like that was the only place I could be during my first winter here. I couldn't stand <laughs> it outside that first winter, and so I would wander the Skyways. Um, and so we were, we were getting ready to, to park, to pull up in a parking spot to meander through the skyways. And I was reminded that my wife had suggested that we go visit the chapel service of the college that we went to. And so I was getting ready to pull in the spot. I remember that she had said that. And I was like, nah, I don't really feel like going to chapel today. Um, actually, like part of my job is to run church services. It's like on my day off, do I really want to go to a church service? And so we were getting ready to park. And I just felt prompted that I was supposed to go. And so I said, hey, Jenna, I think that we should go. And she said, okay. So we pulled out of, out of there, drove over a couple blocks to the college and parked and, uh, and, and went into the chapel to get ready for the chapel service. And I had a couple of thoughts, uh, a couple of meaningful things that happened to me at this chapel service following this prompting, but a couple of meaningless things happened first. Like the first thing I noticed when I sat down in this chapel service with all these college students is like, these kids look like they're 13 years old. That was a sign to me that I have significantly aged, right? So I felt real old in the chapel service. Um, but then a couple other things uh, stood out to me. I actually was on the verge of, of tears about five different times during this one chapel service. It was really weird. Uh, the first thing I thought of when I first sat down in chapel and looked around the room is I thought about how much that this, uh, that chapel and that college um, had transformed my life. It had a ripple effect over the next 22 years of my life. First of all, it was in that room that I was sitting in, I remember, that I first saw my wife. That was the first place I ever met her. What an incredible effect that she's had on my life. And it was because I was in that room. 
I remember um, so many sermons. I remember times it's a Pentecostal school. And so even though I grew up Presbyterian, there were a couple of moments going to school there where I wondered what in the world is going on in here. Um, but all in all, I, I, I experienced God's presence at that school. Um, and so the, the president of the, of, the, of the school got up to give his sermon uh, at the end of the worship time. And I remember, I remember uh, sitting in the chapel service looking at him and remembering what a profound impact that he personally had on my life. Uh, he taught a class called hermeneutics, which is about how to study the Bible and get everything that you can out of it. He was the first person to open up a Bible and to instill in me like a passion for, for, for God's Word, for understanding what's in the Bible, for how to share what's in the Bible. His, it was significantly his influence, uh, the reason why I'm a teaching pastor here at Woodland Hills. And I sat there thinking like, man, this is, this is amazing. What an amazing effect that this college had on my life. It had a ripple effect on it. Now, at the end of the service, I thought I was done. I had followed the prompting. I was like, God, apparently you wanted to like, remind me of my past and to encourage me. But then right before I was getting ready to leave, uh, the Spirit prompted me, like, go, go tell the president some of the things that you've been thinking about during this chapel service. I'm like, I don't want to do that. But I figured, okay, I'll say yes. So I start walking up the aisle to the stage, and then just as I get to the front, somebody else cuts me off, steps on stage, and starts talking to the president, Right? So my first inclination is, how dare you get in my way? Didn't you see that I was on the way up to the stage? But then the second inclination is I got a little bit embarrassed. So you ever do that thing where you're walking up the sidewalk and you trip and then you pretend like you're running for a couple of steps so that in case anyone was watching? I did that thing. I like peeled off to the left where they were taking communion. I kind of pretended to be part of the group for just long enough to peel back around to my seat and sit down. And I had two thoughts. I was a little bit embarrassed. And then the second thing, I was like, I got out of that one. And the Spirit said like, nope. I want you to go up there and talk to him. Ugh, fine. So I went back up and I stood at the front of the stage while he was talking to this other person. And they talked for a long time. Apparently this guy had serious problems because it took him a long time. And I thought for just a second, like, oh, this is what it feels like. Uh, because oftentimes at the end of a sermon, people will line up to talk to Greg or I. And it was interesting to see what it's like to be on the other side of that, to have to wait patiently your turn. Not one of my specialties. little confession for you. So I stood there, waited and waited, and finally uh, he peeled off after getting prayed for, and I stepped up on the stage, and I just, I told the president what an impact that his, his leadership of that school had on my life, uh, that it, it transformed it. It was at this school, I told him, that my passion for ministry was fueled. In fact, the work that I do now is because I was equipped and empowered to do that under his leadership. And I said, not just your leadership of the school, I was in a class where you ignited a passion in me to really understand what the Bible said, uh, and it's what led me to, to being a teaching pastor at Woodland Hills. Uh, and then he paused for just a second. He said, you're a teaching pastor at Woodland Hills? And I said, yeah. Like, he said, like, Greg Boyd, Woodland Hills? And I said, yeah. He said, interesting. That's <laughs> <laughs> said. Uh, now, after he said that, uh, he said, Seth, um, I, I need you to know you, you couldn't have known this, but this has been one of the hardest weeks of leading here at North Central. I, the, the duty of leadership required me to make some difficult decisions, some of the most difficult I've had to make in my season of leadership here, and it's my last year. I'm going to be retiring, and you can't know how much the Lord is encouraging me and my leadership because of what you said. And I was like, man, come on, right? So then I'm getting ready to walk back to my seat, and then out of the corner of my eye, I see, um, I see a person who I've, I met uh, coming to church here when I was a youth pastor. Uh, he and his wife were part of this church. 
And I felt prompted, he was, he was praying for students, and I felt prompted like, Seth, you need to go over and have him pray for you. It's like, come on, Lord, haven't I done enough this morning? Now I feel like it's like prompting overtime, right? So I, I go over and I just, I let him know that I've got to preach the sermon this week about following promptings, and then I felt prompted to come over, and I asked him to pray for me, and, uh, and he did. And I thought it was fairly uneventful, um, except he sent me an email yesterday. I got it about an hour before the sermon. Here's what he said. He said, Seth, it was great to see you at North Central yesterday. I'm not typically one to over-spiritualize things, but I felt compelled to email you about how significant your few moments with me was. I can't go into much detail, but the situation leading up to yesterday's chapel involved two really difficult things that happened the day before, and this has rocked all of us, and me specifically, so much so that my entire presence here today was difficult to get through. I had prayed overnight for God to help me to get through the next two hours of chapel and prayer time because I felt like an emotional wreck. But I felt like it was important to be available to pray with students as we do each week. And for my fellow faculty members that are feeling the same sadness and difficulty, this wasn't something I could explain very well at the time. And that brings me to you. I'm sure you were at North Central for some reason, and you may have come over to see me just because you recognize me, but I want you to know that to me, it was an answer to prayer and completely unexpected. It was an honor to pray for you, he said, as feebly as I may have done so, but it was completely part of God's work within me in that moment. I think it has something to do with having someone from outside my present context brought right to me, and even though you didn't say anything about it, God acknowledged and affirmed that as hard as things are right now for me, that he knows, and he feels, and he cares. He cares enough that he would do something seemingly small like this just to encourage and uplift me, and it did. God's love got my attention. You spoke about promptings in last week's sermon, and I just want to testify that even if you didn't realize it, I believe you were acting on the prompting you spoke of. Thank you. Then he gave his name. Uh, he's, a, he's a pod rishoner now. Um, what I want to talk to you about today is the ripple effect that your life can have on the people that are around you. The president, uh, in his sermon that almost brought me to tears, uh, he was preaching from a text that's real close to my heart. It's from the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to read it for you as we get started. Here's what, Jesus, uh, here's what Mark says about what Jesus is doing. Jesus went up on the mountainside, and he called to him those who he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, it's real important, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons, that they might be with him and that he might send them out. So this sermon is the last installation of this Everyday Influence series, and I want to talk to you real briefly this morning about making ripples, uh, that your life makes ripples in the people that are around you, and they spread so far that sometimes you may not know it. I followed a prompting on Friday that seemed silly, and it had an effect that I could not have had any idea about, and I can't really take any credit for. The only thing I did was like, I just tried to do the thing that I could do in the moment when the Spirit prompted me to do it. Uh, so there's three things I want to tell you, and if you want to take notes, actually on the back of your bulletin, there's a spot for notes. I'm going to give you my three points, because every great sermon has only three points, right? The first point is this, you are a powerful being. I hope that I can convince you that you are an amazingly powerful human being. I hope I can convince you that God has powerful news, and I hope I can convince you that you don't have to be perfect to preach. You don't have to be perfect to preach. 
Now, the first one, you are an amazingly powerful being. And to try to help build this case, we have to go all the way back to the very first book of the Bible. Do you know what the first book of the Bible is called? Everyone say it out. Genesis. Does everyone know what Genesis means when translated to English? Beginnings, right? So it makes sense that it's at the beginning of the book, right? Now, so it's a story of beginnings. It's a story of creation. I don't want you to say it out loud. I just want you to think in your brain. What's the first thing that God created? The very first beings that God created. Uh, They were angels. God created angels, amazing, immensely beautiful beings. In fact, they're so powerful, so beautiful, so amazing that every time they show up in the Bible, the human response to seeing an angel, what is it? Fear every time, like, whoa, right? So God creates these angels, uh, and these angels are with him in God's presence, and he creates a couple of them that are pretty powerful, and one of the most powerful high-ranking angels makes a decision. He decides that he doesn't want to be on God's team. He decides that he wants to start his own team, and he's an amazingly powerful angel, and so he does it. He starts his own team. He goes around the rank of angels and says, hey, I know you're on God's team. You should be on my team. We're going to do something better, and we're going to fight against God's team. And amazingly, he convinces one-third of the angels to join his team. And so that third of angels, uh, God can't tolerate that kind of rebellion in his presence, so he has to banish these angels out of his presence, and he does, and he sends them down to the earth. The earth is formless and chaotic. Uh, Greg often talks about this, the Hebrew words that that the scriptures use, tohu and vabohu formless, void, chaos, and dark. And so these, the, the, the anti-God team of angels is down on the earth, but God's not done with the project yet. So God looks at the earth, and he starts creating it and preparing it for sustained life. He does all kinds of things, bringing order out of chaos, like light and day, sea and land. He creates animals. He fills the oceans with fish and the land with animals, the air with birds. And then he gets ready to create an amazing being um, called humans. And he creates Adam, and before he creates Adam, he prepares a little garden in one section of the earth, and that little garden is perfect. It's what the scripture uses. It's not a mathematical kind of perfect as in there's no error. It means that it's whole and complete. Everything that the human beings need for a full and complete life is in this garden, and he puts Adam in this garden, and God and Adam are on the same team. And they're working on this project together. Here's kind of an illustration of how it goes. Like, God creates all these amazing animals, but God doesn't want to work alone. A team of one is no fun to God. And so God says, like, Adam, I'm going to give you an important job. Even though I created all the animals, you're going to get to name them. And in a pretty amazing picture in Genesis, the animals line up in front of Adam, and Adam starts giving them names, right? I just want to be there for that scene, like elephant. You know, the next thing comes up. Koala bear. How do you come up with koala bear? Uh, narwhal, you know? Amazing. So God and Adam are on the same team, and they're, they're filling this garden with life and with wholeness. But because God isn't alone, because God exists as Father, Son, and Spirit, one of the lessons that Adam learns when the, Adam, when the animals come is that each one has a partner. And so God says, you're, you're, not, you're not different than that. In order for you to really bear my image, I'm going to create a partner for you. You're going to collaborate together. You guys are going to become a team. And Adam and Eve become a team with each other and a team with God. And God gives them a commandment. He says, Adam and Eve, you guys are the leader of the garden. In fact, you're the leader of the earth. I expect you to be fruitful and to multiply 
See, God looks at these human beings and says, you humans are so beautiful, so incredible and amazing. I want to see a whole planet full of you. And I want you to take this little garden that I've planted, and I want you to tend to it. I want you to take good care of it, the rivers and the plants and the fruit. I want you to do a good job with it. And so my vision is that this whole planet will look like this little garden, but I'm not going to do it for you. It's your job. I delegate the responsibility of being leaders of planet Earth to you. What an amazing responsibility, right? Can you just imagine for one second what would have happened if Adam and Eve hadn't decided that they wanted to start their own team? What would have happened if Adam and Eve would have stayed on God's team and that little garden that was in the Middle East between two rivers, if Adam and Eve would have continued to be fruitful, if human beings would have filled the planet, and if the way that things were in that garden were like that in the whole earth? Imagine the thousands and thousands of years of building beautiful things that God and the humans would have done together. Can you imagine what kind of cities we might live in? Can you imagine what a world without any war or any traces of war would look like? Can you imagine a world that existed for thousands of years with no death, no decay? Can you picture that? That is an amazing vision, the vision of the kingdom of God fully available here on earth. That was the project that God was working on, but we all know the problem with the story is that these first humans, Adam and Eve, just like me and you, we decide that we don't want to be on God's team. We decide that we can form our own team, and Adam and Eve decide to do that, and it ruins the whole thing. Talk about a ripple effect. Adam and Eve say, we don't want to be on God's team. And as soon as they make that decision, they also realize that they're not on each other's team anymore. Now they have shame between them. Man, the ripple effect of shame to the human race, amazingly powerful. Not only do they decide that they're not on the same team, the whole creation feels the ripple effect of this broken relationship of which we see all around us, right? Humans fighting other humans. What kind of source of destruction has that been on our planet? Poverty. The effect on the creation, right? The ripple effect that that disobedience has had on our whole creation. Did you know that like the, the rest of the story of the Bible, after the first couple chapters of Genesis, instead of the project continuing along the kingdom of God with the human beings working together, instead of that project continuing along, the whole rest of the Bible is God trying to fix and get the project back on track. And it takes an amazing turn when Jesus shows up on the scene. And like Greg talked about in the very first week uh, where he talked about the good news is that Jesus physically on himself, and we'll celebrate this on Friday, he takes the consequences of human rebellion, our sin, and he, he holds them on his own body while he is tortured, while he pays the ransom, the price that should have been ours to pay. To get the message across to us that your sins and my sins, the sins of the human race, are no longer counted against us. Those are no longer the reason why we can't be working on this kingdom of heaven fully on earth project that God wants to be working on and the fact that God has never given up on that project. Did you know that? 
Jesus, in one of his prayers, when he teaches the disciples how to pray, these key phrases, he says, may your kingdom, may the kingdom of God, the, the vision that the Father has, may that vision be fully alive here on planet Earth. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on this planet just like it is in heaven. And I want you to know, God has never given up on that project. I can only imagine Jesus when he's praying that prayer. He may be the only human being who can fully realize and understand what does that vision look like, the kingdom of heaven fully on earth. The truth of the matter is, a lot of us, just like Adam and Eve, instead of choosing to work on that project, we, we choose to work on our own project. And Jesus not only does that, he removes the sin, but then he invites the disciples. And in Mark, uh, it, it gave us a clue. He's, this little group of disciples that he has, he's going to get them working on this project, the kingdom of heaven fully on earth project. And just like God commanded Adam and Eve, he said, don't, don't keep the, the shalom, the wholeness, don't keep the vision of God in this little garden. I expect you to fill the earth with it. I want to see you be fruitful and multiply. Um, in two really classic passages about Christians making a ripple effect in our world, there's two verses that we often go to, and actually I want to point you to them. The first one is Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus gives the disciples a command of what he wants them to do. He tells them that they're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, and he says that they're going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, their hometown, like the Spirit coming is going to make a big impact on their hometown. And two weeks ago, we talked about the fact that it did. Peter gave a sermon, a couple thousand people joined the kingdom of heaven fully on earth project, and their city got turned upside down. But not only was it going to be in their hometown, it was going to be in Judea, their home state, all the way to Samaria, a place that they thought God didn't even want to go to, and then ultimately to the ends of the earth. Echoing this commandment of God to the humans in the very beginning, be fruitful and multiply. Take this vision that God's given you and spread it through the whole earth. Let that vision have a rippling effect. And then in another spot that we call the Great Commission, uh, where Jesus sends the disciples out, here's what he says in Matthew chapter 28. Then Jesus came to them, the disciples, and said, All authority in heaven and all authority on earth has been given to me. Therefore, Go, make disciples of all the nations, right? That echoing that Genesis account, go be fruitful and multiply. Go make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Because all the things that Jesus commanded were simply, this is the way the vision of the Father looks like in the kingdom of heaven. Let's make it real down here on planet earth. And then he promises them the thing that they need more than anything, the thing that you need more than anything, the thing that I need more than anything, that God would be with us. Jesus says, I'm going to be with you always, all the way up to the very end. You're not going to be alone in this work, he says. Now, those two verses have often been quoted very appropriately when we send people to get on planes or boats to go around the world to go to remote areas and say, take the kingdom vision of heaven and let's like try to make it as real as we can to people on earth. And it's actually at this point that I want to call up the AWOL team. We are going to send out a group of people here from our church that's going to head out to Mexico. They're going to take this commission and they're going to go out and spread this good news. And so we want to invite these guys up. We want to hear a little about your mission trip and what we as a church can do to support it. So would you welcome them? Amen. Thank you, Seth. <clears throat> 
So this is Joe Kelly. Joe Kelly is a leader of the AWOL team. And uh, for those who don't know, give us a little uh, background on what AWOL stands for and what do you do in Mexico? AWOL is an acronym, a work of love. Um, um, we go at the invitation of a, a, a missionary couple that works with the Orizaba Nahuatl Indians of uh, Veracruz, Mexico. Um, they're lifelong missionaries. That's their home. Their, their kids are born and raised there. They don't leave them. Um, that, but that's it. That's where God's called them. Like I said, they call us, they invite us every year to come down and work with them, with these um, beautiful people. This year you've got some projects planned and Woodland Hills needs to get behind you and help. And what are you going to do and how can we help? Uh, first, I want to say thank you to this body. This body is just amazing. And it's, this is a we thing. It's not, a, it's not us going. It's when we go, you go. Because uh, we can't go without you. Um, so the projects this year are kind of twofold. We're going to be building a couple of small houses, one for a young Nahuatl pastor and his wife and children, Lito. And then uh, the other one is for a young, a young woman named Letty, uh, a single mom, deaf, so that in, in that culture and in this particular place, uh, no education. There is no such thing as special education in, in the mountains. Um, so she's kind of uh, been rejected and pushed um, from by her family and by the community. So we're going to build her a small home. And uh, the second part is we would also like to, if we raise enough money, um, to sp help sponsor her into a school for the deaf so she can learn how to sign and read and write so that she'd be able to communicate. Um, uh, the other one is last year we worked on a, a home of a man and his three daughters, Alfonso. He has a broken leg. It's been broke. He has been off his feet for almost two years now, unable to walk. So his daughters are carrying the burden of their property and of their livelihood. It would be nice to get him surgery on his leg so that he can uh, become a productive person again. Um, we need about five to $7,000 for the construction projects. Anything above and beyond that would go to Letty and, and Alfonso. Thank you, Joe. And just to recap here real quickly, you know, the Bible talks about going. What are your qualifications to go? Willing heart. A willing heart. Let's pray for these guys. If you want to join me up front here and lay hands on them in the New Testament, uh, when the church commissioned people to go out and do ministry, they laid hands on them, prayed for them, and sent them forth, and that's what we want to do right now. And you can stretch forth your hand from where you are. If you prefer, that's fine, too. Father God, we do thank you for these guys. I thank you, Lord, for their faithfulness, for those who have gone many years. And I thank you always, Lord, for the new ones that said, oh, I can go too, because all it takes is a willing heart. Father, I ask that you bless them, continue to encourage them and provide for them, Lord Jesus. Watch over them, especially as they're getting ready to go and while they're on the mission field, as attacks come, we know they will. Um, just help our prayers to create a shield over them, Lord Jesus, uh, to keep them safe. Father, help us as a church, as a body that's sending them out to support them and to come up with the money to do the ministry they need in Mexico. In Jesus' name, amen. They will be out in the gathering area afterwards. Stop by and see them. Thank you. Thank you, Seth. Yeah. All right, so one way that we can work to be fruitful and multiply is by saying yes, like this crew is, by like, we're going to fly over to another part of the country. Um, but that's not the only way to be fruitful, right? 
That's not the only way to participate in this project that God's continuing to work on, which is like the kingdom of heaven fully here on earth. Because what about my backyard or your office or like Spanish class third period? Does, does God have a vision for that? And I just want to say yes, totally. So the first thing I wanted to tell you is that you are a powerful being because you were made in the image of the most powerful being in the universe. You were made in the image of God. You were made for your beauty and your wholeness and your life to ripple across the entire earth. And even though that project almost got lost, it was rescued by the greatest hero that the world has ever seen. That's Jesus of Nazareth. He got that project back on track, and he invites all of us to get on board with it. God has a vision for our planet, and it's amazing, and you and I get to be a part of it. That's the news that we have to bear. And I just want to say that God has powerful news. This is good news. Uh, Greg talked about it on the very first week when he said, like, evangelophobia is something that he's caught, and maybe many of us have caught it, and we can just get rid of it. We can shake it off like a bad head cold, because the good news that God has isn't really terrible news that's disguised as good news. It's good news that God has a vision for our world, and there's nothing that's going to stop it. Your sin's not going to stop it. Human rebellion is not going to stop it. The, the angels that rebelled against God's team isn't going to stop it. Like God's vision and his dream for our world is going to come true, and we can play a part in it. One of the ways that we get to play a part in it is opening our, opening our mouths and sharing this news. And one of the people in the New Testament who did it the best, his name was Paul, pretty incredible preacher and sermon giver, church planter, kind of a stubborn, fiery guy. I really like him. Uh, in, in the book of Romans, here's what he said in Romans chapter 1 about this good news of the gospel. See if when you read these words, you feel the same way. For I'm not the least bit embarrassed about the gospel. That's the way you feel, right? I won't shy away from it. Because it's God's power to save every person who believes. Honesty time. Have you ever been a little bit embarrassed about the gospel? I know I have. Now, there's two things that happens around this. First of all, I have to be honest that some of my embarrassment about the gospel doesn't have anything to do about the gospel itself. It has to do with the people who express the gospel, right? You ever been flicking through the channels, you know, channel 295, roll by a TV show where you hear someone presenting the gospel and you go like, you don't exactly feel proud to be part of the same team as that guy or gal, right? I've been embarrassed, but truthfully, I've also been in situations where I've had a wide open door in front of me. Someone has asked me a real direct question. Hey, Seth. They find out what I do for a living. They go, hey, why do, why do you give your life to like being a preacher and working at the church? I have a wide open door, and I totally hesitate. Because in my mind, I go, this person doesn't want to hear this. I'm for sure going to stumble over my words when it comes out. Nothing's going to happen. This person is going to think that I'm weird. Because I believe that a guy who was alive 2,000 years ago is the most important human on the planet and that God's vision for the world is actually going to come true. I don't know about you, but sometimes even when a wide open door is there, I totally coward out and I avoid it. I find something else to talk about. How about the Vikings and how terrible they are? They need a new kicker, right? We could turn that corner. Not only do I avoid it sometimes when the door is wide open, I oftentimes avoid it when it's just a crack. 
You ever been in a conversation where someone says something like, uh, you know, I'm just really struggling right now. I, I, feel like, I feel like I can't find a purpose in life. That may not seem like a garage door open to present the, the power of God in the gospel, but it's a crack. And when I hear that, Instead of being prompted to nudge through that one, I oftentimes will go like, I'm going to take a left turn because I'm just not sure I want to risk it. Now, if you have ever avoided like I have, I just want to self-confess to you the reason why I can be an avoider when it comes to sharing the good news is because sometimes I'm not sure if I open my mouth if, if the Spirit will meet me on the other side of it. Sometimes I'm not certain if there's enough power in the words of the gospel to accomplish its purpose. I sort of feel like all the power has to be up to me. It's all up to me. And Paul says that the good news of God has its own power. It doesn't need yours. If you open your mouth and share it, it has its own power. In fact, Peter, when he got up and preached that impromptu sermon that led 3,000 people to joining the church in one day... Do you remember at the end of that great sermon, the audience didn't respond to him by saying like, wow, what a great preacher he was. He made me laugh. He made me cry. He made me feel warm inside. I want to be a part of it. They also didn't listen to the sermon and go, wow, that was an incredible intellectual presentation. You've removed a lot of the barriers that I've had to believing this incredible story, and you can count me in. The audience after Peter's sermon The reason why they responded the way they did is there's one phrase that says that they were cut to the heart. The gospel is God's news. It's not our news. It's not your news. It's God's news. And because God has immense power, when God's news comes out of your mouth, it has power of its own. You can trust the Spirit to fill it. You can. You don't have to avoid. So on one side, we can have avoiders, people like me who can say like, ugh, it's not true that I'm not the least bit embarrassed. I sometimes am embarrassed, and I'm trying to grow out of that. The second group of people I would say uh, that I grew up with significantly were eruptors. Now, these people were so radically transformed by the gospel, they had incredible experiences that they literally were always brewing and like, It was like a lava cauldron that was like hot and ready to blow at any point. If you started a conversation about anything, you you were talking about cinnamon rolls. They'd say, oh, you want to talk about frosting? Let me tell you about the frosting of the gospel. And then they would like launch off into a presentation. It's like, wait a second. That doesn't have anything to do with what we were just talking about, right? Eruptors don't wait for the door to slightly open. They kick the door down, start screaming on the other side of it. So avoiders don't believe that God's power is in the gospel, but eruptors don't either. Eruptors think that they're responsible for it, that the gospel, that they're going to force feed it down someone's throat, and that's not, that's not allowing God to work either. However, when God opens a door, do you know the most powerful news that you can tell someone is your own story? What's God done for you? How's God transformed your life? Why is it that you decided to get working on this project that God has called the kingdom of heaven fully alive on the kingdom of earth? Why did you sign up for that project? And when you tell your story, I bet you won't be surprised when the spirit shows up and it has some kind of effect. But you have to remember, it's not your news. It's God's news. And God will fill it and use it. You're a powerful being. You will make ripples. There's no question about that. What kind of ripples will you make? That's my question for you today. 
God has news that he wants you to share. It's his news, not yours. I want, you, I want to know, like, what if, we, what if we made the conscious choice that we were going to walk away from the habit of avoiding? We were going to believe that God's power is in the words. And we were also going to walk away from erupting. And instead, the thing that we were going to do is like, God, if you open a door and I step through it, I'm going to trust that if I open my mouth, you will be there for me. You're not going to leave me. You said that you would be with me even to the end of the age. The last thing I want to say is you don't have to be perfect. I think a ton of times, a ton, one of the things that keeps us from making ripples with the people that are around us is we feel insecure. And sometimes we should, right? Like, let's be honest. Christians don't exactly have an incredibly great reputation in the society that we live in. True or false? True. Um, we don't have to have a perfect reputation to be able to open our mouth and share our story. We don't have to. We don't have to wait for the perfect chance. You don't have to like look at something and go, is this the perfect opportunity? If you wait for the perfect moment, do you know when you'll do it is? Never. It'll never be the perfect moment. And you don't have to have the perfect presentation. And your life doesn't have to be perfect, right? I mean, one of the things that Sandra taught us last week, we're all in a box, right? What was the name of the box that we're all in? It's okay. We're all in the screw-up box. And you know what? In the screw-up box, God's news still has power. It still does. All right, now, um, some of you guys know um, that in 2013, uh, my, my best friend and I, uh, we had been running a coffee bar for a few years, and because Speaking of the screw-up box, <laughs> we had no idea what we were doing. The thing was slowly bleeding to death. I thought for sure we were going to have to close it down. And then one day we just decided, like, the both of us are kind of competitive people. We just said, we would rather go out in a flame of glory than bleed to death over the next 12 months. So we, like, we borrowed all the money that we could, and we, we took this coffee shop, and we tried to expand it into something that was, like, we had no idea whether it was going to work or not. And, like, by either total luck or people uh, from the neighborhood feeling badly for us, like sympathy, or God's hand, I don't know what, but like we took a chance and it totally worked and the restaurant took off. And uh, in the summertime, someone from the City Pages magazine came and they like ate all of our food and they did, did a big write-up in the City Pages. I was pretty proud of this. In fact, this hangs up above the cream and sugar table at our place. And uh, Maybe I should take it down because that's a little uh, self-promoting here, but um, there's some nice words in here about the work that we put in to like building, building this thing on the corner, and I'm real proud of this. I don't know what you do for work, or if you're a student, you invest a lot of time and energy on this thing that you go to from nine to five every day, right? And it's, that's meaningful stuff. One of the ways that you make a ripple is by putting your hand to meaningful work. That's for sure important. This last week, I got another email. Um, it was actually someone that I met here. She was a student in the youth group here when I first became the youth pastor. I know that this work that I do, you know, 9 to 5 over here at, at Groundswell, that it produces ripples that I feel really great about. People have meetings at the place. People meet each other. It builds a sense of community neighborhood. And that is one way in my work and in your work that the kingdom comes. That's for sure. But I just want to say that the ripples that I most want to leave behind as a legacy for my life is something that came through this email. Um, I asked her if it was okay that I read it to you, and so she said that I could. 
this was the wrong email. <laughs> Dear Seth, thanks for your message. I woke up in the middle of the night composing an email to you, uh, but it was only in my head, so now I'm writing it out actually to you. And she says, your influence and your discipleship were one of the major reasons I chose to follow Jesus. It's a gift to me that you ever came to Woodland Hills, and I praise God for that. I know you think I was so teachable, and the truth is, I am pretty easy to influence. But at the time I met you, I was getting bored with the way that I understood my faith. It was overly emotional and non-substantive. I didn't understand Jesus or Christianity very deeply. And your teaching and your life demonstrated a God who is real, a God who is genuine, a God who is expansive of heart and much more human than I had ever realized. And this understanding compelled me towards God. Can I help but pray that your influence would cause many more people to follow Jesus, she said. The fruit of a life given to Christ is, is your harvest. And it's a tough crop. Just want you to know, it's, it's tough to sow seeds, and it's tough to tend them, and it's hard to reap because the enemy wants to uproot it. The enemy has many strategies. Hailstorms and drought and deep freezes and disease and infestation of pests. I want you to know, um, when I get to the end of my life, the ripple that I most want to make, the harvest of my life that I would be the most invigorated by is to know that people, because of my life and because of God working through me, because of the ripples that I've received from all the people who've invested in me, and the ripples that I make, they lead people into a meaningful and fulfilling and lifelong commitment to being part of the kingdom of heaven, fully here on earth movement. It's known as like Christianity. That's, that's the ripple effect that I want to have with my life. And I just wonder about you. When you think about the ripples of people who have invested in you, the, the power of God that's transformed your life in some ways, what kind of ripple are you making for the people that are around you? You are making one, you know. Jesus didn't say you could choose to be witnesses or not. You are a witness. You're just a, a witness to something. What is it? If you're making ripples around you, what kind are you making? Um, I want to close our service by saying just a couple words. Would you stand? All right, this is the very last sermon of this Everyday Influence series, of which for the first two of them, we asked everyone to write down some people's names on the cards. I just want to ask you real quick, you don't have to say it out loud, how's this going? I want you to know that this kind of thing of of keeping people on your mind and praying for how you could be effective in their life for the kingdom of God. This isn't like a six-week strategy for a series. This is like a lifelong commitment. Like, God, would you continue to challenge me with my, you know, with eyes of compassion and with ears that listen to people's stories, not looking at people like their projects, but looking at people like opportunities to love. I want to reach out my hand and pull them closer into my life. I want to be willing to open my mouth when you tell me to talk, and I want to be bold enough to not avoid and not erupt, but be willing to share. And I want to be willing to walk alongside someone over the long pathway that it might take for them to go from a negative 10 to a 1. That's a long project, guys. You know that? To make ripples in other people's lives requires perseverance. 
and commitment and listening to the Spirit. It's, the Holy Spirit is the number one tool for successfully making ripples in people's lives. Speaking of that, in your bulletin, there was a little invitation card. I'm, I'm titling this a prompting card. I have homework for you guys this week, okay? Even though this is way too big to fit in your back pocket, maybe it can fit in your pocketbook or purse or somewhere on your dashboard, would you put this in your car or in your briefcase and make this commitment, okay? This is an invitation to our Easter service of which Greg, um, our whole team has put together a creative service. Greg has worked on his sermon. We're going to talk to people about the Jesus-looking God that we believe in because um, we think that the, the word of God on the street can be anything but that, right? Would you put this in your car or your pocketbook and just ask God, like, okay, Spirit, if you prompt me to invite someone to the service, I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm, I'll be willing to do it. If you don't prompt me, I'm going to leave this on my dashboard. I'm not going to force someone to come to the Easter service, but if you prompt me to invite someone, I'll say yes, okay? Um, and then I just want you to know that as a church, we... Uh, we sent out um, to three-mile radius of this church. We've invited our neighbors to come join us for Easter because lots of people go to lots of different churches on Easter. We'd love for some people to choose this church this Easter to hear about a God that loves them immensely, a God that doesn't look angry and vengeful. You know, like Greg talked about in the very first week, we're not talking about Bruno who has terrible news of judgment. So he said, like, what if we invited some folks to hear about a Jesus-looking God here? What if we committed ourselves to, like, having a ripple effect in this neighborhood, and for you to have a ripple effect to the people that are around you. I want to close with Paul's words from Colossians. Uh, here's what he said about what our role is in making a ripple and opening our mouths and sharing. He says, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message. The way that doors get opened is through prayer, so let's keep praying. We pray for us that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. We shouldn't forget that the word witness that gets used in the Great Commission is the same word as martyr. Being a witness oftentimes costs us something. Pray that I may proclaim it. It's amazing all the words that he could have used here. He could have said like cleverly, pray that I may, uh, that I may proclaim it in a very informed way. And the thing he asked for is like, just pray that I'll be clear as I should. We should be wise in the way that we act towards outsiders, shouldn't we? We should make the most of every opportunity. And we should let our conversation always be full of grace. And along with grace, it should be seasoned with a little bit of salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. All right, let me say a prayer for you and then we're going to dismiss. God. Over these last weeks, we've asked ourselves, how can we have the kind of influence every day that leads people one step closer to your kingdom? I pray that our ears would be open to your promptings to follow the Spirit. And when you tell us to move, I pray we would overcome the disposition of our brain to say no and that we would say yes. That we'd be willing to open up our mouths and remember that the message that we share, it has your power in it because it's your news, not ours. God, help us to take the ripples of our lives and line them up towards your kingdom because your vision, the kingdom of heaven fully on earth, is one that I'm committed to and we as a church are. In your name we pray, amen.